Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Heather Linear. She's the author of the poetry collection, Psalms of Unknowing, as well as the memoir, Raising a Rare Girl, a New York Times book review editor's choice. Her work has appeared in Salon, The Sun, The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, Long Reads, McSweeney's, Time, and elsewhere. She works as an assistant professor of creative writing at Rowan University, and her TED Talk has been viewed 3 million times and translated into 18 languages. Welcome, Heather. Thank you for having me, Ronita. It's so good to talk to you. I'm so glad you're here, and I'm thrilled that we get to talk about your book and your work. So can you share a bit about Raising a Rare Girl? Yeah, Raising a Rare Girl is a memoir. And if you get the chance to work with a publisher, you know the publisher will ask you to come up with the tagline for the book. And I actually think that we did a good job with this one. So at the top of the book, it says it's about um, raising a child with a rare syndrome, which it is. But it's also about what I call defying the tyranny of normal, which is like the the oppressive um level that normal as a social construct kind of weighs in on all of us. And mostly it's about embracing parenting as a spiritual practice that breaks us all open. Like I've had people read it and like who aren't parents at all who say it's really about embracing a, a life that was unexpected, you know, like how to handle how to handle things when the kind of rug gets pulled out from under you. Because my daughter was born with a rare chromosomal syndrome um, when she she was diagnosed uh, about three months into her life. And so the book starts with birth and proceeds uh, pro- proceeds from there. Mm-hmm. And there, you know, it's really, I, I just want to say it's really hard to capture. You did a great job. And also there's so much in your memoir. There's just so much we could talk about. And it's hard for me as an interviewer to focus on where I want to go first, because mm-hmm. there's so much craft wise that works well. And the story itself is captivating. And I didn't know how the story was going to end. I actually mm-hmm. knew very little about the the truth of, you know, what ended up happening or who you are or, you know, what mm-hmm. you've done since. So I was sort of at the edge of my seat the whole mm-hmm. time reading your book. I went into it completely fresh. So mm-hmm. it's been about three years. Is that right? Since the book came out? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. Yeah. And can you think back? I know it takes a while to incubate a book, mm-hmm. et cetera, but what in this book was the most challenging or what were the most a- uh, challenging aspects to write or put together for you? Oh, yeah. So I actually was writing about, I was writing about parenting a child with a rare syndrome. My daughter, Fiona, has this uh, deletion on a, one of her chromosomes. And I was writing about parenting her on a blog since she turned one. Uh, and I was always like a literary writer before that, where I would write poems and try to publish them in places that had that were very very prestigious but had like a readership of 300 you know and I just thought the people I really want to write to and reach out to and build community community with are people who are like scrolling on their phones late at night tending to tending to like a, a caregiving situation that's challenging and they're not subscribing to like obscure review etc you know the, so I started a blog I, by the way, that's a really, I don't know, is there a lit mag called Obscure Review? Because I <laughs> Not <feel> yet. 
Okay. It's very meta. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. I mean, I did have a dream last night that I was pursuing the AWP book fair, which is this big conference book fair, and there were many, many, many journals. So, but no, there was no obscure view quite yet. Well, how would you have found it? It's obscure. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> sorry. So, um, so I wrote that blog for. I kept that blog for five years, and I was also writing literary essays, those would take more time. So like I would maybe work on an essay for six months or maybe even a year. And I would also be writing blog posts over the course of a few weeks. So it was just writing a lot about her life and and raising her, um, like what it was like to be a parent of a child who defied so many expectations and who raised so many interesting questions against this culture of achievement parenting that we're definitely in the midst of. Um, the the hard part about writing the book was that, well, I'm, the, actually the book deal was the easiest part, which is not not not, not <laughs> the normal at all. Yeah. And I don't I don't speaking of normal, like that's not normal. Um, I I wrote an essay called Super Babies Don't Cry, and it went sort of viral. Um, like Cheryl Strayed shared it, and a days later I had an email from an editor and from an agent, and the editor yeah. was from Penguin Press. Mm-hmm. Um, those ended up being my editor and my agent. Those people I stuck with, they were wonderful. Um, but the hard part was sifting through five years of writing and thinking like there must be a book here, right? If I just sort of assemble these beautiful pieces, it will create like a beautiful mosaic book. Um, mm. And it just wasn't the case at all. It was because I needed a guiding voice to so- to like tell the story. Like, there was very little that I used that I'd actually written. You know, there may have mm. been the occasional sentence or two or maybe a scene that I really liked the way I captured it. But a lot of the early material early blog posts and essays I wrote when Fiona was very little were very raw. Like the voice Mm -hmm. is a person who was trying to, was very immersed in parenting, was very sleep deprived, although we were sleep deprived for a long time, and was just trying to make sense of this all in the present tense. And I needed a voice. I, I really felt like I was sifted when I looked at all the material that I had after my, you know, I was trying to put together a book proposal for, with my agent for the editor Mm -hmm. and whoever other editor would look at it, I felt like I was metaphorically in the basement sorting through boxes of Mm -hmm. stuff. Like Mm -hmm. some of it, you know, some of it was, was really, really useful or like, oh, look, this is a treasure, but like not in this context, you know, Mm -hmm. not in this box. So it was really finding a voice um, that, that would carry through and a voice that provided the right psychic distance to tell the story I wanted to tell, which was a story in part about, at least the first half, about um, what I'd say is excavating my own ableism. So my daughter has intellectual disabilities, um, and I was very much raised in a culture of achievement and and also like subscribed to that in parenting. I wanted a voice that could see myself, my past self, from a, you know, as Sue Williams Silverman would say, like from that voice of experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I needed past tense and I needed humor and I needed insight that I didn't have when I was like a new mom. So I think that was the hard part was having written like literally tens of thousands of words Mm -hmm. and being like, it's not, it doesn't work in the book because the voice isn't right. 
Well, how did you find it? I know that's a really ridiculous question to ask you, but because I know it takes so much time. And I really think that is one of the most challenging parts when you're writing a memoir. I mean, with maybe Mm -hmm. all writing is to figure out what voice you're using, what the psychic distance is. But to Mm -hmm. what you're saying is, is I can completely see what you're saying the problem would be because it it covered so many years and so many Mm -hmm. iterations of where you were Mm -hmm. with ableism and, Mm -hmm. you know, perfection and your daughter's health health and mm-hmm. ability to thrive and so there had to be all these jagged and raw parts as well as you know probably angry parts and how did you know that you had hit upon a voice that was going to be the guiding force for the book mm. the, there was an essay that I wanted to write and that was the essay about super babies so it's it was published in Vela magazine and um it was I knew it was going to be about uh, like kind of the pseudo religion that I was raised in where it was like if you do all the right things and think all the right thoughts you will have health so it's kind of mm. like a, a new age version of the prosperity gospel I, I wanted to write about that upbringing in the context of of having a child who was designed with disability like who was made mm-hmm. her genetic design is one of disability and sometimes of health complication and like the way that parenting sort of um, beautifully interrupted my ridiculous uh, views of health. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I sat down to write that essay after sort of like I knew it was coming. I knew I knew which pieces were going to be part of it, which scenes, which experiences. And I remember a friend of mine, Joe Astrike, who I went to graduate school with, had said something like I said, like, how do you know when to start or how do you how do you start an essay? And he said, it's all the voice. It just begins with the voice. So I remember sitting there for a while, like looking at the blank page, and then I just wrote a very simple sentence, which was something like, um, when I was pregnant, I tried to make a super baby. And that's the uh, that's the beginning mm-hmm. of the essay. And then I write about like the way that I obsessively tried to make this like perfectly healthy human being. But it had to be done through humor. And it had to be done in such a way that I was like, elucidating the um, ableism and the absurdity of trying to make someone superhuman. But I was also going to have to come to a place where I would show compassion for the person, for any of us who wants to protect ourselves and our loved ones through health, you know, like we, yeah. we don't we don't want to hurt. So that sentence was enough for me. And then I just sort of took off on like the ways that I tried to like you know microwaved my my turkey cold cut turkey like they tell us to until they're literally you could throw them like frisbees (laughs) um you know that that was the voice that i needed and it was the voice that started that essay and it ended up being the voice that started the book too so i guess i you know i did find a voice in those brown cut metaphorical brown boxes of the basement of my writing that helped me ca- like helped sort of like be the the boat I guess that carried me through the across the whole river of the narrative. Yes, and also what it did I think and and you talking about it now reminds me is you're putting that version of yourself firmly in the past which mm-hmm. is sort of a gift to yourself. I'm not saying that it came easily and it was so effortless, that's not what I mean, but when you put it in the past like that, it for me as a reader I realized, okay, we're talking about this other version of yourself. And so it really was able to help me figure out the character you versus the narrator you, mm-hmm. which was so useful. I think yeah, because I I don't know how much during reading 
reading your book, I thought about the voice, but I did notice that you were able to add humor and you definitely know how to be self-effacing and also, you know, it's, it's an incredibly painful and, and delicate time in your life. So it's not that any of those shades out way the other right none mm-hmm. of them are overpowering they all mm-hmm. kind of work in concert so before I go on to my next question that I had planned I wanted to ask you I think what you mentioned about blog writing taking mm-hmm. maybe a couple of weeks for something to be ready or or shorter I'm not sure if that's what you said mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. literary essays which take a lot longer mm-hmm. I think that's a really important point and I wonder how they felt different in your body or why you knew mm-hmm. that one was not going to cut the mustard for a literary essay versus the blog you know that's such a good question I've had people ask that of me in the past and I and I struggle to figure (laughs) out what it is I think partly it's intuition you just know you know Mm -hmm. um for me for a literary essay I want it to include a couple of different I guess like if you're a quilt maker like I want it to include a couple different textiles you know or like different colors or different fabrics I guess like I want there to be a concept that I'm chewing on that I don't quite understand how everything fits together and I want there to be some scenes that I think are related to the the issue and I want there to be some research angles that I want to highlight and some contemporary issues that might be related and and all of it feels like a big mess in the beginning in my brain dump you know in terms mm-hmm. of a like a brainstorm And I also am like looking for a form maybe even that might like make it into art. And a a blog post is like an impulse that feels quick um, that I need to get out. Like like it's a, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of a quicker insight. Maybe it might be one moment on a plate. Like there's, there is actually a moment in the book where this woman is pushing her her grandson Mm -hmm. who's just, she says she'd, he'd quote, just beat cancer. And she's looking at me and she says, like, what's kind of what's wrong with your kid? And I'm pushing Fiona, who's not yet verbal then and who's very, very tiny. And people can tell, like, presents as different than other kids. And and I had to, like, wrestle with the fact that in this woman's mind, um, healing was like disability was only something that interested her if it had a narrative of 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 cure. And so that that scene actually does exist as a blog post at one point because mm-hmm. I we lived it like I went to the playground mm-hmm. it was daylight savings so things were getting dark and it was Vermont and I needed some light you know and I and light for me like light is sometimes I find light through writing about moments like that and just saying like this is absurd that this happened and this is how I tried to reclaim this this narrative and writing about her perception of disability helped me reclaim the narrative that like we can be disabled and it doesn't have to end in, um, quote, cure. And there's other ways of telling a narrative of disability that are beautiful and important. Um, so I don't know if that helps, but I yeah. think that, you know, short, it's, they're shorter. The blog posts were shorter. They were more urgent um, and they were left, less stitched together with like multiple sort of th- um, threads that I had to figure out a new construct for. Mm-hmm. And when you were sharing your early drafts of this book, were there aspects of the story that you worried about more than others? Was there anything you felt nervous about or subconscious about with your readers? Oh, yeah. This is a, the the first version was, I think, 100,000 words. And um, oh. and it was supposed to be 80. And my <laughs> and 
So that's always fun because you're. It's always fun when your job is to cut. You know, it's like okay, and now we will measure progress in deletion. <laughs> um, right. Which it turns out that I have this terrible habit of writing a topic sentence to every paragraph that doesn't need to exist. So it was great because like usually the first <laughs> sentence of every paragraph could go, and my editor helps me cut down a lot. So that was just a craft issue, like trying to figure out like what's necessary, what's essential. Um, uh, but the one thing that really worried me is actually the moment that I felt was was really important to write about. And it is it ended up being the moment that people write to me most about in appreciation, but it is not a stellar moment of mine. So it's this moment where like Fiona was young. She was maybe six months old or something. And I was starting to like understand the extent to which she would have intellectual disabilities and like what would be a spectrum of possibility for her, you know, and I, I just didn't know, but it was starting to hit me that like a lot of things would be a challenge that like, for instance, walking and um, using complete sentences and using a bathroom by herself would all actually be like really high expectations for kids with this syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was kind of like really letting that sink in and realizing like I, I felt pulled between this like belief, this ableist belief that I'd always had that um, like a, a high achieving life, whatever that, you know, means in like our economy, I guess, or in like um, career or something. It's not like I valued being a CEO of a business or something, but like some kind of high achieving life was more that was more important than um, somebody who who was was disabled in such a way that they were it's not employed or like um, not not being outside the house in these like more achieving ways that we think about. And um, I hated that. I absolutely hated that I had this realization that I had this understand like I had this myth about what was valuable. Um, and I was sort of like excavating it in dialogue form with my husband. And my husband is an amazing human being who also happened to be a Zen monk for a very long time. <laughs> and um, he just looked at me and he was like, she's like, she's not a damaged, she's not damaged goods is what he said. And it just like blew me away that I had to come to terms with this, uh, this history of believing that a high achieving life was more worthwhile. And that I absolutely adored my daughter who was, you know, a baby and gorgeous and like a being of light and a spiritual being. And um, and yet I held this this view that I had this longstanding ableist view that was gonna, that needed to go. Um, I hated that moment. Um, I just felt like I had to write it though. I felt like I had to be honest about where I, where I sort of hit my own walls and mm-hmm. um and it is the moment that people thank me for so it's mm-hmm. <laughs> so i think it's unfortunate that we've like it's unfortunate but sometimes you have to you have to write the thing that makes you look absolutely shitty thank you Kara, for being a let's talk memoir partner Kara is a subscription service that ships high quality personalized vitamin supplements and powders to your door every month. And one of the really fun parts is you get to go to their website, which is beautiful, by the way, and personalize what you need based on your concerns. There's a quiz that helps guide your supplement selections, and you can retake it as your needs change. I shift my packets around a bit, but I always include ashwagandha, the chill pill, B-complex for stress, always need that, always have needed that, and the probiotic, which is good for digestion and immunity. 
Right now, you can get 50% off your first Care Of order by going to TakeCareOf.com. That's TakeCareOf.com and entering the code MEMOIR50. So if you want to try Care Of and you want 50% off of your first order, enter code MEMOIR50. Thank you, Care Of, for being a Let's Talk Memoir partner. You know, I think also this sort of illustrates for me on a craft level the divided self that, you know, and also, and I've talked about it on the show before, but it's, you know, the the thing that we're we're all these things, right? We're more than one thing. And maybe Mm -hmm. the divided self in your readers are recognizing and grateful to the divided self in you for you know, holding space for the, the contradictions in us all and, and being brave enough and vulnerable enough to to show it right there when you have the mic and it's your platform. You know, you can do whatever you want, but I think people really admire honesty and self-searching and, you know, like that. I think that it's, it's anyway, memoir readers yeah. really appreciate well, yeah. it. I mean, Mary Carr talks about the inner enemy, you know, that like every memoir is in the art of memoirs talks about like inner enemy, every memoir being built on this sense that you've got this conflict with yourself. And so, yeah, that on a craft level, like we don't need to dump all of our worst moments onto the page, but I think we do need to choose those moments that illustrate the conflict, you know, the di- I love that. Mm-hmm. This, the, the, I love that expression of the divided self too. That's mm-hmm. super useful. Um, how did you approach writing about your kids? Because you write about both of them, and mm-hmm. I know we are going to spend a little bit of time on this. Uh, I, I'm also mm-hmm. curious about suggestions or advice for other parents working with material about their children. I think a lot of people will use this useful lens, which is um, I'm writing about. The, the the parental experience you know um like what it was to per, to parent somebody what it was to learn to be their parent um their mom their dad so it, uh, there's that like i think there's that useful lens rather than like this is a memoir of my daughter's experience i don't know what her life was like from the inside i don't know what it was like for her to be her in these various like doctors meetings she was very very little too but the book also ends with her walking into kindergarten, which is, uh, you know, kind of, I felt like a step into the public life, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I knew that at that point, people were gonna start reading about, you know, their teachers could read her blog uh, or the blog I wrote about her. And I wanted to like that to be the the end, you know, Mm -hmm. like here, I got her to five, I got her to public life, I got her to public school and off she goes, you know? There's like a little bit of a sense of how she's doing afterwards, but for the most part, I don't write much about her beyond that. Maybe I would in years if, maybe as a parent I would if I felt like a child could give me honest consent, um, you know? But I, I, I still, even as I write about, if I do write about being my kids now, it's about being a mother more than it's about like specifics of their lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the lens is on you as a mom and your development yeah. and what you've learned without really offering a super insider intimate look into what they're experiencing and feeling and things like yeah, that. Yeah, right? absolutely. Absolutely. Do people come to you with this question? Do you have students who ask you about this or other writers who ask you? Do you ever offer like a certain type of checklist? I know that sounds that's a little greedy of me to ask you, but is there anything 
you mm. would suggest for people who may not have that kind of calibration inside, but they want to be respectful of their children? I think family dynamics are so unique that, it, and mothers have been so silenced to assume that their their work and their experience is not valid in the art sphere. That it, I I don't have like here's your checklist, here's your line <laughs> in the sand, um, because I think we're given those boundaries way more than we sh- should be given them. I think we can use our own instincts. Um, I do think it takes honing those instincts though like what's Mm -hmm. too much for you is not too much for someone else what's the wrong piece for one family is not is the right piece for another family so i think there was there's there was advice i got in graduate school from my professor lee martin who said uh, something along the lines of like i I know the ethical line that I that I have as a writer when I've crossed it. And that's the beauty of a draft, you know? Mm-hmm. Like you can cross all kinds of ethical lines in the unseen word document or Scrivener document mm-hmm. um, and then let it sit and go back and figure out that's the truth that maybe you needed to write to, to, to an intimate ghost reader and now what's the truth that you can share with your with the world and still keep your family intact those are just i think that people can listen to their instincts i did once write a blog post that was something called the rules for writing about fiona but it's kind of more along the lines of um like a lyric essay but it does kind of it tries to articulate what are the guidelines um Mm -hmm. for me like how did i how did i figure Mm -hmm. that out so we can maybe add a link yeah maybe we can yes definitely why don't you send that to me and i'll put it in the show notes so it's in the show notes. I'm going to say that now. <laughs> Do you think you could read that excerpt? You can set, yeah. I mean, I don't know if you want sure. to set it up at all, but um, you're going to read a little bit from the beginning yeah. of the book. All right. So Fiona was born five, four pounds, 12 ounces, and she was full term. So this was, everybody was very alarmed in the hospital. And I really wanted to get out of the hospital because they were so stressed and I just wanted to go home and rest. Um, so we were kind of had like one more hurdle to get over, which was the pediatrician, another pediatrician giving her a final check before releasing us. Uh, so this is page 17, pretty early on in the book. The new pediatrician was a shadow hunched over my baby. I sat cross-legged on my narrow hospital bed, wondering when I might scarf down another meal. This new pediatrician was even more suspicious than the first. He said nothing like, she's got good tone. He made no cute coos, offered no chirpy hellos. He looked at my girl with displeasure. What was the placenta like, he asked. Anything unusual about it? Was it small? If you've ever seen a placenta, you know there is everything unusual about it. The one that came out of me was a red blob with a network of veins in its center, like a bird claw clutching tight. It was a temporary organ. My body had grown without me even ordering it up. It was grotesque magic. I'd marveled when the midwife had shown it to me. I made that? But I had no idea how it compared in a lineup of other placentas. I don't know, I told the doctor. She's having trouble latching. A lactation consultant thinks she's tongue-tied. One nurse felt confident that Fiona's frenulum was giving her feeding troubles and that we should have it, quote, clipped so she could nurse better. The pediatrician used a gloved finger to pull down on Fiona's chin and lift her tongue. No, he said, tongue's fine. He kept looking at my baby. He kept looking at the human I'd gestated for nine months, the one who'd grown in a room of my body I'd never seen. I knew her more intimately than any other person, and yet I hardly knew her at all. 
She was a small sun in an air-conditioned room, a mystery to orbit eternal. If it's not the placenta, he said, then it's the baby. What was, quote, it? His pronoun was a stuffed suitcase splitting at the zipper. Quote, it was a problem. The doctor and I were on different floors of thought in different wings. You see, he said before dropping a bomb, it's either bad seed or bad soil. I wasn't so sleep deprived to lose the thread of his logic. I was the soil. My daughter was the seed. My newborn, according to his expert eyes, was a bad plant. He left. I cried. A sandwich came. I tried to eat it. And then this is the next last section of that chapter. With discharge papers in hand, my husband and I fled in the opposite fashion one usually flees, as slowly as possible. Justin merged onto I-75 with the gentle care of a grandpa. He drove in the right-hand lane five miles below the speed limit. I sat in the back seat with our new family member, who was bean-shaped and nearly engulfed by her gargantuan car seat. Fiona was her name, but the word on her onesie was fragile, stenciled in the font used for cargo crates. When a friend had given it to us months ago, I was dubious of its size. No way a person could be so small. But now my baby swam inside it, her lean torso lost in the white folds, her wrists poking out of the short sleeves where underarms should be. She was too small for the smallest clothes. She was too small for fragile. A semi roared past in the center lane and I cast an arm across Fiona's car seat, feeling a flash of fury at the world's steel and speed. Our child was a wiggling riddle. How could she be both miraculous and medically concerning? She couldn't, was my answer. He's wrong, that doctor, I thought. She's fine. She's just small. In one way, this was the voice of wisdom whispering truth from my gut. But I made that wisdom speak more than it could. She'll catch up, I added. We'll show them. We exited the highway slowly. We took the familiar turns to our little house in a suburb of a suburb of Cincinnati. If Fiona cried in the cab of our car, I don't remember. If the radio played, I don't remember. In my memory, there's only silence as my husband and I move forward. My arm lies across the car seat like an extra safety belt. My neck is craned so I can see between the front seats and spot any danger. My husband's hands are at 10 and two. We are uncharacteristically cautious about a 20 mile drive. We're driving with the quiet of a hundred unknowns, questions we know but can't answer, and questions we don't know at all. Among the known questions, is something wrong with the baby. My encounter with that second pediatrician was a bucket of ice water on my postpartum head, either bad seed or bad soil. But his words were a useful forewarning, one I couldn't yet hear. The world will not always see your beloved as good. And because I couldn't hear the forewarning, I couldn't hear its conjoined questions, the biggest of the things I didn't know. How will you love such a person anyway? How will you reconcile the noisy values of the culture with the bursting pangs in your chest? I knew this. I already loved her so much it hurt. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so you. much. Yeah. yeah you know, something that occurred to me that I, I want to mention is I really don't see self-pity in your book. You know, I, I think that that is something m memoirist writers, I think, need to be alert to and really important to avoid. And I, I wonder, did you ever 
get into territory that you felt was bordering on self-pity? Did anyone help you with that? Or do, do you think you just naturally didn't have any? I mean, one thing, I, my goal with writing this book was that folks in the disability community would read it and at the very least say like, we are not harmed by this, you know, like this. Mm. And so I, I didn't want to write anything that made it seem as though Fiona was a burden, you know, like mm. I wanted to shine light on her beauty and also the beauty of having a life that is unexpected and sometimes really difficult and in painful ways. Um, and so pity as a mother would have I think set me up for failure in that goal but also I felt like wasn't honest to like the actual mm -hmm. spiritual process and journey of being her mom but I did sometimes I mean there's a lot of encounters here with like troubling doctors as mm -hmm. as the first one shows or like oh you know very subpar uh, early intervention therapists mm -hmm. and there were moments where I was angry looking back at like certain therapists who you know just weren't weren't as great as they could have been, weren't as thoughtful, weren't as strong of advocates, strong enough advocates for Fiona. And so sometimes there was like one therapist that my editor kept saying like, okay, we just, I want you to like pull back the anger, basically, <laughs> you know? So I guess it was anger that, you know, anger's tough. I think the best thing to do I've found is to like show what you're angry at, but not get in the way with your own anger. Readers seem to appreciate that. And so I had to work on pulling back a little bit. I know there are other writers who beautifully talk about like rage on the page and why it's useful and how we can maybe let loose. But um, in, so that in my case, I, I was not successfully capturing rage. So I just pulled my <laughs> rage back and let, let shine the thing, the cause of the rage, which is often what we do as writers, right? We don't, we're trying to trace our impressions back to their causes. And then we give the reader the impressions or the causes and we, let them experience the impression um, mm -hmm. through through image and through language and through moments. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can you talk about what you've discovered about using personal narrative for social change? Mm. It's limited, right? It's very powerful. And I, I love personal narrative. I love life writing. I love reading it. I basically, you know, sometimes people see me and they're, they're saying, I'm reading your book. I said, oh, these will be like neighbors or something. And I so thank you. And they're like, but it's kind of weird because now I know everything about you and you know nothing about me. And I'm like, I just want you to write your memoir then. Like I want you, I want everybody to give me their memoirs and so that we can all know each other. Give me all the memoirs. Yeah. Yes. I want to know everyone at least 300 pages deep. Like I really do. But also like it, it can't do everything, you know. So there, for instance, there's a moment where we have a, a mo we have a, a great appointment with a geneticist who diagnoses Fiona with a very rare syndrome called Wolf-Hirschhorn syndrome. He is fantastic. He's a new resident. Um, many people have terrible diagnosing mm. appointments where the doctors are incredibly condescending, pathologizing of their children, not celebratory. I mean, it's awful. Mm. So I did a bunch of just interview research to find out like what were some things that the doctor said to you, particularly if you had a negative experience, because so many people did, mm. because my moment doesn't stand enough for like, I think the majority of people in our community, at least 10 years ago, maybe it's improving. And by my community, I mean people who, in Wolf-Hirschhorn syndrome community. So there's that. There's the moments where like your experience is anomalous. Um, sometimes you need to contextualize that with research. Uh, similarly, like 
you know, there's research really early on in this book with the APGAR score, where the APGAR score is like the way that they, they score babies early mm-hmm. on. And I was really interested in the fact that Virginia APGAR, who, who designed that test, um, really liked that hospitals were getting competitive about their babies' scores, mm-hmm. that, like, that, that that was like a point of pride, that we were setting, essentially we are in a culture that has a history of grading babies from the very beginning. I'm not saying that like APGAR isn't a useful health measurement, but she was very excited Mm -hmm. that doctors were getting competitive about how good their numbers were. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was an important fact for like this tyranny of normal that I'm trying to explore in the book. So I think two things. I love personal narrative. Yes, we should all tell our stories, but also I think it's helpful to think about the way that other people's stories can help us contextualize our own and how research needs to be brought in to like offer other context. Mm-hmm. And you know, in our in our time, which is winding down, I, I do want to ask you a bit about Psalms of Unknowing, which is your new book, which yeah. is poetry. And mm-hmm. so you write in different genres. So I'm just curious if you can talk about that and also what your writing life is like now. Oh, yeah, thanks. Um, so Psalms of Unknowing is a poetry collection that comes out uh, September 12th of uh, this year. And um, it was written over the course of many years, like uh, 10 years or more, probably. It I consider it like a, a feminist collection of poetry that looks, it explores issues of faith and doubt and motherhood and fighting the patriarchy and seeking the divine. I've always kind of written, I think, for me, like I... I get overwhelmed by writing and I'm always I'm also always writing so I get overwhelmed by projects sometimes and I need to cheat with other writing basically mm-hmm. so I you know the, I was writing the blog as almost like a cheat because I was trying to write another memoir which I finished but haven't yet published and the poems are like that too so mm-hmm. when I'm sort of stumped or when I'm finished a prose project or in between or it's just a way for me to sort of keep writing and and keep keep awake to writing possibilities is to like mm-hmm. always kind of have two different genres going and that might mean that I've got like a draft of a poem that I haven't touched in weeks or months mm-hmm. sitting on sitting in a folder but that's just how I work it's either many projects or no projects <laughs> feast or famine I'm a little like that <laughs> yeah. too so so then it looks like you have another memoir that's kind of done and then you're working on something else right now yeah, so the the memoir that's done is like I, I have to read through that and figure out whether I'm actually gonna rework it or not. Um, but what am I working on now? Oh, I'm working on long literary essays. So mm-hmm. I just published an essay this year called The Heart Wing, which is about the way that doctors kind of try to turn the body into a machine and mm. how like a lot of interesting theories of the heart and actual facts about the heart make it much more mysterious than than we know. That was published in Long Reads. And then I just finished an essay that I submitted about, um, it's called The Body of Apologies. It's about women's tendency to apologize for having bodies in space. Um, and um, like, yeah, just a bit of a memoir and also some research about apology and the gendered nature of apologies. So right now I've been working on longer literary essays and and other poems and thinking about what a next like what would a next book project look like so maybe mm-hmm. another memoir maybe an essay collection yeah it's amazing because you are a mom and you are you have a job and you write and you do all the things <laughs> and I know a lot of people do but it's just uh, there's yeah. so much there's so much energy and creativity there what advice would you like to share with writers working on their memoirs hmm 
Oh, it all depends on what stage they're at. I mean, I work with graduate students here at Rowan University, and sometimes, actually, you know what? The number one thing everybody needs is permission. That's the number one thing. They're so, even at every level, this in, in every genre, because I work with a lot of different genre writers, um, the students often try to be something they're not. Like, they come in to this year-long class where they have to write a, a big project and they're a poet but they're going to try to write a novel you know or they're a mm. they're, they're they want to write a memoir but they feel like they should fictionalize it because they're scared and just being like owning that they have a story to tell and that they have every right to write it is really i think it, it's it's an obstacle for all of us. Like at every level, you can convince yourself that you have no right to be on the page. Maybe that's, you know, predominantly for people who identify as female. Um, but I just find that permission is the big thing. And then the second thing would be like, just get words on the page, just get scenes, just give yourself over to the, for, for actual memoir writers, give yourselves over to the carnality of experience, as Mary Carr calls it, um, and do that for a hundred pages. And then step back and think about structure and voice and also be willing to, you know, write again. Like, it's fun to follow Mary Carr on Twitter because she's constantly talking about all the many drafts that she's doing. So, you know, <laughs> those are some different different tips at different stages of people's writing processes. Thank you. And mm -hmm. what are some memoirs you would like to recommend? Oh, so, so many. I, I loved Sarah Santilli's um, Stranger Care, which is written in these short sections about uh, having her being a foster mother and it, it weaves all this beautiful research in about trees and everything. I mean, it's just gorgeous. It's really fun to read. I love Kesey Lehman's Heavy, which became a banned book for absurd reasons. And it's just an absolutely phenomenal book. So always recommending that one as well. Great, thank you. Mm -hmm. And lastly, where can people find you? I'm at Heather K. Lanier. I think that's my Instagram and Twitter, Heather K. Lanier, L-A-N-I-E-R. And then um, I have a substack called The Slow Take. And then my website is heatherlanierwriter.com. Okay. That will all be in the show notes with that piece that we talked about during our conversation. Mm -hmm. And thank you so much for spending time with me and and your generosity. I just am so happy we got to do this. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ronnie. This was a joy. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.